Hello, everybody. I am Danny Goodwin, executive editor of Search Engine Journal. Thanks so much for joining us for another part in my new series, Better Know an SEO Pro. In this episode, I'll be highlighting the career journey of an SEO expert who is the real deal triple threat. That's right. He's got expertise, authority, and trust. This is definitely one person, if you're an SEO, you better know about. And if you don't already, today you're going to learn a lot more about him. Uh, today we won't be talking uh, tactics and strategies. We'll be talking about his career, his real-life successes, struggles he's faced and overcome, and lessons learned along the way. There's so many uh, you know, great and extraordinary stories of people, how they got into search and have built a successful career. Uh, and today it's time, once again, to share one of those great stories with you. So I hope you all enjoy this Better Know an SEO Pro installment. Uh, and we're always looking to make them better, so please tweet us with any feedback at SE Journal, or you can tweet me at Mr. Danny Goodwin on Twitter. Love to hear your feedback. All right, so in today's edition of Better Known SEO Pro, I'll be talking to Eric Enga. He is currently the general manager for digital marketing at Proficient Digital. He was the founder and CEO of Stone Temple Consulting, which was acquired by Proficient uh, in July 16th, 2018. Eric started Stone Temple back in 1997, uh, but initially it was just a personal consultancy until around, 2000, uh, around 2007. He's been doing SEO for more than 20 years and was involved in the internet since the early 1990s when he played a role in AOL building up its a subscriber base, uh, back when it was still the world's largest ISP. Oh, they're good old days. Uh, you can read him on the Proficient Digital blog which is in the process of inheriting all the content at the blog on stonetumble.com. He's spoken and keynoted at so many conferences, including PubCon, SMX, State of Search, Next10x, which is uh, his very own conference. Uh, also spoken at Digital Growth Unleashed, IRCE, and so many others. Eric also has a book, The Art of SEO, which is now in its third edition. And poor Eric is just drowning in awards, guys. Here are just a few. 2016 Search Engine Land Awards Search Marketer of the Year. 2016 U.S. Search Awards Search Personality of the Year. 2018 Drum Search Awards Search Personality of the Year. 2018 Drum Marketing Awards Marketing Personality of the Year. Uh, well, runner-up for that one. Um, he was also in 2016 U.S. Search Awards Large SEO Agency of the Year winner and a 2018 Interactive Marketing Awards Interactive Agency of the Year. You can find Eric on Twitter at Stone Temple and on LinkedIn, uh, Eric Inga. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to welcome in Eric Inga to the podcast. How's it going, Eric? Oh, great, Danny. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, I'm glad you ran out of things to say because uh, I was getting embarrassed. So. <laughs> It is great to have you here. Um, so, yeah, are you ready to get started? I am. Let's okay, go. Okay, great. So uh, let's go back to the very beginning of your journey. Uh, so what was Eric Inga like as a child? Oh, my. <laughs> Do I remember? Uh, that was <laughs> such a long time ago. Uh, so, uh, well, to be honest, uh, I was... Uh, um, a little bit, well, actually, kind of gregarious up to a certain point in my life. And then I, uh, um, I don't know, somewhere around 10 or 12, uh, 
took a sharp turn towards being uh, more of an introvert, um, which is exactly how I describe myself today. Um, uh, wasn't, you know, back then, you know, every kid didn't play in a sport and I didn't really play in any until maybe I got to high school and then I swam on the high school swim team and, and the like. Uh, um, so that's a little bit of background. My parents were, uh, moved to, to the States from Norway, uh, um, about two years before I was born. So, um, and it's the reason why I can say that I was, live in Massachusetts and most people say, but you don't have any accent. <laughs> um, uh, and there are some places where I do have an accent, but not the real hardcore accent. And uh, it's because Norwegian plus uh, uh, Boston seems to equate to something close to Midwest. Very true. Uh, so as a child, um, do you have like uh, any memories of sort of like the first uh, sort of on-brand thing that you did? Like what was the sign of things to come for you career-wise? Like were there any inklings that you would sort of end up in the career that you've ended up in? Well, um, I think the thing that I would point at that set that direction for me is that my father um, uh, taught physics at MIT for 30 years oh, wow. uh, and headed up their lab for nuclear science. Um, so he was the chair of that for something like 10 of those years or maybe 15, something like that. Um, but on the side, uh, which, and this is a lot of successful college professors do this, um, he had a very robust consultancy and was brought into a whole bunch of um, different um, situations where he was working with startup companies, helping them get off the ground, helping them grow their business. So he wasn't actually the guy running them, but he was integral to them in a subject matter expert-like way. And, um, uh, you know, the funny thing is the way you ask your question, the, the, the literal answer to your question would be, why no, I don't. And, and the reason is because I didn't really take the turn towards tech, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, you know, where, uh, you know, internet marketing is, you know, especially if you're an SEO, there's, there's strong elements of tech in that. Um, until, uh, um, I went to college and started digging into, uh, well, I went and pursued an electrical engineering degree mm -hmm. and that's what I eventually ended up, uh, getting. Um, but, um, Younger, I mean, I, I was always curious, uh, and dug into things in more detail than other people. Um, you know, in junior high and high school, I get interested in history, and lo and behold, you know, within two years, I had about 200 different books that I've all read cover to cover. Um, so that might have been a clue as to how I go about learning things. Mm -hmm. um, but the tech engineering marketing thing didn't happen until a little bit later. Okay. 
What was the first piece of technology you remember being obsessed with? So, um, I bought at one point uh, a Heathkit 100 um, computer, mm-hmm. which was something uh, manufactured uh, by Zenith Data Systems, actually. Um, and what that was is it was the first computer I ever got, and it was a build it at home. So you had to assemble the entire computer yourself. Uh, so I was uh, um, out of college at this point, mm-hmm. but um, uh, yeah, I, I bought the computer. I built it from scratch, um, and it was a dual processor system. It had an 8086, which at the time was amazingly powerful because it was 16-bit. Uh, CPU um, and a Z80 processor in it. The Z80, if I booted it on the Z80, it would run uh, CPM. That was the operating system that predated MS-DOS. Okay. Uh, and then the 8086 would boot MS-DOS. Um, and and I kind of that was my first journey of getting my uh, fingers really under the covers of technology and and like really getting something at a deeper level and 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 saying hey this is kind of a cool thing to do mm-hmm. very cool so yeah um i i was just looking over your linkedin i was like wow he's gone to not one not two but three pretty amazing schools so you went to tufts you went to northeastern university and to umass amherst so um, I guess, did, so were you, I guess, always a knowledge seeker or um, what sort of spurred, like, how did you end up going to three different colleges? Well, so one of the things that you have to do in an interview like this, if you're truly going to be genuine, is you have to share, um, um, you know, some of the parts that didn't go so well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've opened the door to that. So let's get one of those under our belt early on in this discussion. Okay. So when I graduated, when I graduated high school, uh, I went to Tufts University, um, and I was just completely unready for the college experience. Mm. I um, um, perhaps was over sheltered. Uh, and you know, suddenly I was living on campus. I couldn't deal with it. I had things happen. Like, um, I discovered alcohol, um, which I hadn't drunk until I got to college, uh, at a frat party where, um, you know, there was uh, good music, good dancing, uh, and they were serving punch as a refreshment. And boy, did I underestimate how much alcohol was in that punch. Uh, and that, that led to, uh, how colorful do you want these stories to be? <laughs> as colorful as you want. <laughs> so I go, uh, uh, I'm there with a high school, one of my best friends from high school who came with me to the party and we had a great time. We went back to my dorm room called Hodgson Hall at, uh, at Tufts 
and we're playing uh, pinball in the lobby area. And uh, I, um, um, it's his turn, and then, you know, while he's doing it, I realize I don't feel very well. So I go, I tell him, man, I, I got to go sit down, and I go into sort of the main open area in, um, you know, sort of the, the, the communal area for the, this particular dorm. And I sit down in there, and after uh, um, a few minutes' time, um, the security guard for the dorm uh, yells over to my friend and says, hey, you better go check on your friend over there. He's not doing so good. And, yes, I had thoroughly decorated the carpet uh, in the, uh, uh, the lounge area. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, Anyway, that's a minor side story in the bigger picture. The reality is um, I wasn't ready for school. Mm -hmm. I did not actually do a good job um, doing my studies. I eventually got into a pattern where I stopped going to classes. Uh, I was pretty checked out, to be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, from what I ought to be doing with my life and, and any sense of responsibility um and after three semesters of uh, passing maybe three or four courses um the school got together uh, called my parents and and I together in and they disinvited me mm. and said you know you need you need to go grow up uh for a while um and i went to work for a while uh at a place called Industrial Coil in uh, Middleton, Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, what they did is they manufactured uh, electromagnets, actually. So by electromagnets, I mean like the kinds of things that are in the Stanford Linear Accelerator mm. that does particle acceleration at hundreds of millions of, of what they call electron volts. Uh, and uh, the Los Alamos or Brookhaven National Laboratories or CERN in Switzerland, uh, and even in things uh, more like MRI machines, um, uh, more uh, smaller scale, but but uh, um, equally or even more important in some regards. But, I mean, it was slave labor. I mean, mm-hmm. well, I wasn't a slave, but I was getting paid $2.50 an hour when I started. Uh, and, um, working with toxic chemicals and, um, sandblasting copper coils and, um, and, uh, actually did some welding and, uh, learned all kinds of different, um, things. Uh, um, and, um, uh, you know, it, it was a hard life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I wasn't breaking rocks in the sun in a prison by any means, like or anything like that. But it was, you know, didn't pay a lot of money. It was very hard work. Mm-hmm. And after being there for oh, I don't know, eight months or at some point when I sort of began to really understand more what was happening around me. Um, you know, I first I kind of went through a stage where I realized that hey, I, I could do this work. I was doing my job well, and mm-hmm. you know, and be very diligent and uh, and etc. But then I got to a point where I realized 
I look at my boss, I'm pretty sure I'm smarter than this guy. <laughs> and and then um, a month or two later, I'd look at his boss and say, actually, I'm pretty sure I'm smarter than that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then maybe two or three months after that, I, I looked up and realized, um, hey, I'm pretty sure I'm smarter than that guy's boss too. <laughs> and and then I realized that maybe I was sort of underplaying myself a little bit. Uh, I managed to get massive raises that was up to three dollars and twenty five cents an hour. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, the big the big money was rolling in. Yeah. Um, and then as luck would have it, uh, because this is what happens in life, funny things happen and things come together in strange ways. Um, I had gone in to visit my father at MIT. Uh, uh, I I met the, the woman, uh, who, uh, was his, uh, secretary, um, and, uh, you know, this happened uh, two, three times, and 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 then I asked her out, and um, we, you know, started dating, and 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 she told me she was going to take a course in music appreciation at Northeastern at night. Uh huh. And I said, okay, I'll take it together with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I took the course. Um, uh, it. It went well, and I connected this together with the, well, okay, I'm kind of wasting my life kind of thing going on, Mm -hmm. uh, and realized that school might be approachable. Oh, oh, by the way, I could start with Northeastern part-time and kind of, you know, work my way into it. Um, I, that's how I get connected with Northeastern. Okay. And I, uh, managed to bring some credits over from Tufts, but not very many. Uh, uh, went to Northeastern, graduated with a 3.93 GPA and class marshal. Mm. So um, what happened is the experience of um, being such an abject failure at Tufts uh, and then the life lessons that followed that and finally connecting with it um, you know, frankly, there was like a, not only am I like going to go back and do this thing, but I'm going to freaking knock it out of the park. Nice. Um, and um, so that's, that's kind of how it happened. Okay. Now, funny side thing. So uh, I got to tell a side story that actually related to this too. Um, somewhere along the way in, in that mix of things, when I was um, working in industrial coil, um my uh my good high school friend the same one who cleaned up the mess after me at Tufts University Hodgson Hall um had gone up to University of Vermont and he came back down and foosball was a popular sport and uh, up there and mm-hmm. so he taught me the game and we uh, would go to the game room, which was the same place. It doesn't exist anymore, but it used to be right across the street from uh, sort of the main uh, northeastern campus. And we would uh, um, play foosball there. And he would, um, you know, continuously beat up on me until I got a little bit better and better and better. 
and then I started going to foosball tournaments um, and local ones um, and uh, gradually got to a point where I started playing, you know, uh, um, you know, pretty well and occasionally winning one of those. And then I bought a foosball table and I started practicing a lot. And um, I actually learned an incredibly valuable lesson from foosball. And it was, which is, you know, it's a bar game, right? I mean, I called it a sport a while ago on those who play it seriously do think of it as a sport. But, but you know, let's, let's be real. Most people who are playing it, you know, uh, are, are swilling drinks and spinning the rods and not very serious about it. Um, but I learned that I could invest in developing a skill and get better at it and then compete very effectively. And I learned that from foosball. Wow. And it's not the place most people would learn a lesson like that. Yeah. I wouldn't, so, ex- I wouldn't expect you could learn much from foosball, but that, that's, I think that's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> Major life lesson learned at foosball. But that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So, um... So up next for you, you started, so you basically went into engineering after this, right? Yes. Yes. So talk a little bit about that and uh, sort of the emergence uh, or how you sort of saw the emergence of the internet. Uh, ah, well, we're still fairly early in my career. You have to remember, uh, uh, I'm, at this point in time, by the time I graduate engineering, we, we've got a while before we're worried about the emergence of the internet. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I went to work at a company called Megapulse mm-hmm. uh, straight out of school. Okay. Um, back, be- back before GPS was the way that we uh, conventionally did navigation, mm-hmm. there was a type of system called Loran C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, well, Loran more generally, Loran C was type of it. But um, that was used by uh, navies and governments to control navigation off the coastlines of their countries. Um, and I went there. My original job was as a hardware designer. So I had this uh, uh, electrical engineering degree um, uh, from Northeastern. And I um, would design PC boards or test equipment or different things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, uh, um, it, it, was, it was good work. And uh, I did some really interesting things there. One of the more interesting stories of that is at one point um, I was responsible for the installation of the Lorraine C transmitting stations or control center for the transmitting stations um, for the French Navy in the Bay of Biscay, which is the Atlantic facing um, side of France. Um, and um, to handle the installation, I was on site in France for 14 weeks. I every day would go. Um, uh, to the naval base, um, I had to go through a, a checkpoint 
um, that required me to have top secret military clearance from the French government. Mm. Um, uh, you know, you have to pass papers. There's guards walking around with Uzis, uh, Dobermans and German shepherds, electric wire fences, mm. because, because the base that I was going on to is the base where France keeps their nuclear missiles. Mm. So, uh, and we would, once we got through the checkpoint, I would ride a bus for a mile and a half to a building in the middle of the uh, island um, that we were on, uh, a five-story building with no windows. I'd go into an elevator in the center of the building, I'd go up to the top floor, and I'd come out, you know, eight and a half, nine hours later. Um, and we worked on the installation of the whole system, the setup of the system. And I did that for 14 weeks. Uh, um, but in any case, while I was at Megapulse, what happened is um, I, one of the board designs I ended up having to do required me to pick the right components to um, um, make sure that the output voltages on the far end of the board were accurate to within, I forget the exact percentage, but it might have been two or three percent. And for those of you, which is probably most of you who aren't involved in this kind of design, every electronic component has a tolerance in it. So they say it's a 10 ohm resistor, um, it's 10 ohms plus or minus something. So we needed to figure out how to um, uh, pick the right components to make sure that the output voltages were in the right tolerance. And to do that, I wrote a computer program. Ah. Uh, I modeled the board design in a computer program, I, uh, and it allowed me to find out what the best combination of components was to hit the desired tolerances um, and that's how I started getting back into software mm -hmm. or got into software really mm -hmm. uh, because I liked it <laughs> yeah. I, li I liked the thought process so I enjoyed it uh, and um, uh, and I started shifting more and more well, Megapulse into software programming, which in fact was the nature of the work I did in the French Navy project I um, talked to you about. Mm -hmm. um, and I, then I went to um, taking courses at grad school. I got a master's in computer engineering um, at uh, uh, UMass. Um, and um, uh, and after a few uh, uh, years there, I was actually at Megapulse for five years, I then landed at a company called Phoenix Technologies. Mm -hmm. Phoenix Technologies has an interesting bit of history to it. Um, Phoenix is um, the leading company in producing a piece of software called the BIOS. It stands for Basic Input-Output System. Mm -hmm. uh, the BIOS is the thing that boots your PC. Mm. Not, not Windows. Um, uh, and 
um, there's a thing in a ROM chip um, uh, on your uh, read-only memory or a flash memory chip on your PC motherboard that has the code called the BIOS. Hmm. And that's the first code that runs when the computer turns on. Um, and Phoenix was and is and remains the dominant provider of BIOS software worldwide. Mm-hmm. And I took a job there, ran worldwide engineering for them for a number of years. Uh, and then at a certain point of time, because um, that company was growing fast, it, it actually grew too fast for my own development. Um, so uh, I was encouraged, and rightfully so, to um, um, you know, find some other roles within the company. And that's when I started my first startup which was inside of Phoenix Technologies. Mm-hmm. But it was a startup where you go to the board and you say, hey, if we do these things, we might make this money. And then the board gives you some funding um, to, to go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started uh, running startup ventures inside of Phoenix. The... Um, I am going to work my way to the internet here before too much longer. Um, so um, the um, the first one actually, uh, I went and looked at a product line that they were considering acquiring, and I actually recommended against it. Um, the second one, I started a business uh, um, uh, around fax software. Um, and bundling that with PC manufacturers' machines because that was a thing at the time. Mm-hmm. And we won some initial business, but that one actually failed. Uh, we then acquired a, um, a, a better piece of fax software than what we had developed and built a new business around that. And now we're all the way into the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I promise everybody who's listening to this, this will speed up. Uh, I won't, I won't spend 10 minutes on every year of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, uh, somewhere in there is when I started hearing about this thing called the internet and email and, and, uh, it was sort of this uh, uh, curious thing over there on the side that I didn't pay that much attention to. How I got my head inside it for the first time is that Phoenix, which had great visibility through all the PC manufacturers worldwide, had a deal with a company called Quantum Computer Services. Mm-hmm to help them bundle their program um, with the PC manufacturers to help them drive subscribers. The name of that program was America Online. Oh, I think I've heard of them. Because at the time, the company was called Quantum Computer Services. Mm -hmm. Um, When the company initially cut that deal, I had no involvement. It was rolled out to our company Salesforce, and I think, in, and we had an exclusive with them. And I think within the course of a single year, 
we made three sales calls as a company on their behalf and closed no deals. Mm. Now, the CEO of America Online at the time was a guy called Steve Cates, a very sharp guy. Uh, And Steve, um, um, you know, called up our then CEO, a guy called Ron Fisher, and said, uh, by the way, Ron is himself a, a major uh, industry force. He is the guy who left soft, led SoftBank's investments um, in both Yahoo and E-Trade, where they, uh, just to give you an idea, SoftBank is a huge venture player uh, out there that a lot of people don't know. But in any case, um, We, uh, Ron Fisher and I, uh, went down to uh, Virginia to meet with uh, Steve Case and Audrey Weil, one of his top uh, VPs, um, and a guy called Randy Dean, um, to negotiate a new deal. Um, And um, you notice that even though I wasn't initially involved, um, I did get brought into the picture to help. Uh, try to preserve the relationship and make it work. And as of the new deal, we still had uh, a more limited exclusive. Um, and I was in charge of this, and it was added to my business unit. And we went out and we closed all kinds of large PC deals for them um, and helped them become one of the largest, um, well, actually, at the time, the largest ISP on planet Earth. Um, it's clearly not the case anymore, but, uh, at the time, uh, you know, dial up was the way you connected to the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my first real internet experience. Mm-hmm. Sorry. That was a really long story for a simple question. But <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, it's all good. Um, so from there then, so did you sort of start? What was the transition from, okay, this internet thing's really cool to, oh, how do, how are these websites ranking? Like, I know there wasn't such a thing called SEO at that point, but uh, when did you sort of start developing that curiosity about, like, oh, if I do this, I can uh, sort of make my, like, make a web page rank better? When did that sort of come into your, uh, into your, th- into your uh, interests? Yeah. Um... Well, when I first left Phoenix, I actually did some business development consulting, um, and that's when I founded a company called Stone Temple Consulting. I did that for about five years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the early 2000s, one of my business development clients, um, well, I got a new one, a new business development client for um, a company called ULN, but they were running a site called bestprices.com mm-hmm. uh, and it was a DVD e-tailer and the CEO, a good friend of mine, uh, Steve Kalman, uh, asked me to, um, you know, help him with biz devs, you know, help them move some DVDs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I come on in and after about 30 days, I said to him, Steve, Maybe we ought to try to get traffic from search engines. There could be a pretty good opportunity there. Mm-hmm. And 
Steve, being a good classic CEO, turns around to the person who brings up the opportunity and says, great idea, Eric, go do it. <laughs> so I started working on on that, and uh, I'm not even sure we called it SEO at that time. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was, uh, probably was, like, a little vague, my memory of that part of it. But um, uh, a year later, we were doing $3 million in sales. Mm. And I did one of those kind of V8 things where I hit my forehead and said, damn, maybe I ought to do more of this. <laughs> um, and that led me to connect with a, a, a past associate of mine, friend of mine from Phoenix Technologies, a guy called Mark Eisenberg. And Mark and I just got together for lunch one day and we happened to chit chat about some things and we both ended up like talking about this search engine thing very excitedly. Mm -hmm. And we decided pretty much on the spot to launch, you know, some websites together and see how we could do. Mm -hmm. So we launched a site called online-motorcycle-parts.com. And within a week, we were ranking number two for the phrase motorcycle parts. Mm. Um, and, um, and that felt really good. And then we started another venture, another site, I should say, education-online-parts.com. And that one, we um, were doing lead gen for schools like the University of Phoenix, uh, DeVry University, ITT Tech. Mm -hmm. uh, I could actually name many dozens of schools, most of which people wouldn't know, but a um, couple hundred different schools that we were doing lead gen for. Um, through a partnership deal with a company called Queen Street, which is still very big in this space, mm -hmm. based in Foster City, California. Um, and um, we built a very strong presence um, in the education legion site as a, a business. At our peak, we were doing 700 leads a day mm. for schools. Wow. So, um, yes, it was crazy uh, um, uh, how well it was doing. Mm -hmm. Now, was this pre-Google or was this in the Google era? Do you remember? Oh, uh, no, this was Google. This was that Google. We were focused on. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just checking on that. Okay. So, so, so what do you sort of attribute, like, how, how are you learning SEO? Because, like, nowadays it's, you know, it's pretty easy. You just go to, you know, there's so many resources where you can learn it. But how are you sort of learning to, like, drive the, all that traffic and get all those leads in the early days? Well, I mean, there was some, uh, uh, there were resources available. Mm -hmm. um, actually, uh, I'll give my first uh, shout out uh, along those lines to uh, Mike Grehan, oh. uh, who mm -hmm. was a, a frequent publisher of content and wrote some great resources about the uh, uh, the Google algorithm. And in particular, uh, I learned from his writing about uh, PageRank um, uh, and, you know, the mechanics of PageRank and how it worked. And, uh, uh, that was a driving factor, uh, in it. And then, you know, other things we, there was enough out there 
Um, look, we did some of the wrong things, or what today we would consider bad things. You know, it's like repeating keywords too many times mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And uh, you know, we were just learning and trying to understand what this thing was. And um, uh, you know, we uh, so we did keyword stuffing and mm -hmm. we did. Uh, you know all of that and, uh, honestly at that point in my career we um, uh, did uh, tons of uh, link swaps I single-handedly uh, managed all aspects of swapping a thousand links in a single summer mm. um, you know picking the targets doing the emails uh, implementing the the links in our faux directory um, uh, you know, validating that we have the links from them, you know, that, that whole shtick um, we did. And and then we, um, you know, unfortunately uh, got to the point where we bought some links too, mm -hmm. um, which led to another fun, interesting, interesting industry story if you're game for it. Go for it. So in... Um, I'll see if I get the uh, uh, the timing of this right. So, December of two thousand and two, um, uh, I had this education online search site generating, you know, that time close to seven hundred leads a day. Mm -hmm. um, December fourteenth, two thousand and two. I came downstairs to check our stats like I usually do or usually did and found out that they'd gone to zero. Mm. We got ourselves banned. Ooh. <laughs> Wasn't a penalty. I mean, we couldn't rank. We didn't rank if you put in the name of our site. Mm. Okay. Wow. Uh, we were kicked out. So, um, uh, that actually led to me to go, led me to go to our first, uh, the first SES Chicago I ever went to. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I only got an exhibit hall pass, but I kind of got a little bit of the vibe of the whole thing and realized that I really wanted to sort of get inside and, and see the sessions and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I uh, started to, uh, uh, go to every one of those shows um, and in particular I quickly honed down on a, an algorithm where what I did is I would go watch every session in which Matt Cut spoke. Mm -hmm. I sat in the front row. When he was done talking and the panel was over, I was the first person to talk to him every time. And I had a prepared set of notes and explanation of what had happened, what we'd done to fix it, why we were no longer such evil human beings. <laughs> oh, and by the way, our ban was permanent. Ooh. There was no way. Yeah, so it was a permanent ban. Oh, we, my gosh. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, uh, and I, um, uh, you know, so I went to SES New York at spring, and there were others. San Jose was in there somewhere, you know. Whatever, and I think there were other shows I went to, but um, you know, I remember that first time, you know, uh, talking to Matt, and uh, I'd uh, um, be telling him 
what we'd done, that we removed all the bad links. Uh, there were 14 Department of Education, state, uh, U.S. State Department of Education websites that we had gotten to link to us because we had done so much to make the site so much better. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, like start telling the stories. And after a while, like Matt did in those days, he'd take out his notebook. Hey, let me just write that down. Let me take a quick note. You know, and, mm-hmm. and 90% of the time, it's just so you feel like he did something and and maybe you'll go away. But, <laughs> but, but you know, look, where we had gotten to was pretty bad, right? So it took him a little while to warm up. Um, all I can tell you is that in the following year at SES Chicago, I went up for my ritual conversation with Matt uh, and, you know, uh, pleaded our case again, and um, you know, to this day, uh, I've never received any confirmation of any kind. But the next morning, we were back in the index. <laughs> so you almost—is uh, this like almost the equivalent before there were a reconsideration requests? This was basically you giving him one in person. Yeah, uh, yes. There, I think there were ways to send in messages, but it wasn't nearly as formalized mm-hmm. um, uh, as it is today, or has even over the past decade it's been. But um, yeah. Uh, so now let me. There's two side effects to this story that are pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. One is it's how I built my relationship with Macus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a, a very good guy, very genuine guy. Uh, and to this day, uh, I feel I owe him a great debt. He gave me a chance. Um, I, you know, there would be many who would have argued based on the history of things that, uh, we didn't deserve that chance, but he gave it to us anyway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Everything I've done to this day to be uh, through the whole time of when, you know, buying links was in vogue and uh, when I started speaking out against it and wrote my first post in 2007 called I Don't Buy Links. Mm-hmm. You can type that phrase into Google. You'll still see my post on Moz. It's, you know, uh, over a decade old. Um, it, it's been about paying that debt back. Mm. Uh, because, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's important. Somebody, you know, gives you a shot like that. You need to honor it. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, pay back, pay it back, pay mm-hmm. it forward. And that's, uh, the, the way I've, I've viewed that something I feel very strongly about, um, and, you know, ever since that date, ever since we cleaned up that one site, uh, never uh, purchased or done any uh, compensation of any sort for a link. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and built and sold uh, three publishing companies and a digital marketing agency um, um, that way. Hmm. So Very nice. Okay. So... I put the word out that I was talking to you, and I got a ton of questions from 
my industry friends, all about Stone Temple. So I wanted to dig into those a little bit because they're really great questions. So first one I want to start with, um, let's go back a little bit on Stone Temple. So Hamlet Batista of Rank Sons wanted to know, what is your origin story with the Stone Temple name? Where did the Stone Temple name come from? Oh, that's at least uh, by far, I should say, the most uh, popular <laughs> question mm-hmm. uh, I ever get about the company. Um, it's simple. I was driving down the highway uh, one night. Uh, uh, I, I needed a name for my company. I was listening to a device called the radio. Uh, I guess some cars still have them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and a song came on, and I go, "Oh, Stone Temple Pilots." And then, like thirty seconds later, it went off. You know, I love ancient temples, mm-hmm. and I thought about Stonehenge. And I actually named the company after Stonehenge, not Stone Temple Pilots. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I kind of like the Stone Temple Pilots, but it's not like my favorite band or anything. But I, I love ancient temples. So uh-huh. it's actually fortunate that I named it after the ancient temple because I was wrong. The song wasn't a Stone Temple Pilot song. I just thought it was. <laughs> Okay, uh, we have so many more questions. I guess before we jump into more questions, um, so at what point did you sort of decide, so it sounded like Stone Temple was pretty much you for the first few years, so uh, how did you sort of decide to expand? What was the point where you go, well, I, you know, it's time to start hiring some people to get some help? So um, back in... 2006, maybe, or 2007, I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was um, uh, out in Vegas at the 50th birthday party with friends, and um, uh, and one of those guys is a guy called John Biendo. Uh, he and I were uh, uh, chatting about things, and we had some shared uh, entrepreneurial excitement, and uh, he got really interested in what I was doing with SEO and um, you know, expressed an interest in, in joining with me. And uh, and he came on board and um, uh, um, suddenly we were two. Mm-hmm. Um, although it was really kind of like one and a half because I had my publishing companies that I was still doing. But um, uh, he came on board. Uh, Worked with me for uh, six or so, or well, maybe I'm not sure how many years actually, maybe seven years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and um, as time went on, um, we ended up finding more people who we knew, and it was really kind of just a lifestyle business. We hired people who. Uh, one was a stay home with dad. We had a retired rabbi. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we had a woman who had uh, made money in a, uh, in a company sale, not enough to retire, but uh, could could be uh, you know, not quite the same financial pressure as others might feel that joined us. Uh, um, and you know, we we built it up slowly for a while that way until about. 2012 or so when it was like, okay, let's actually stop doing this like a lifestyle business. Let's really grow something here. Mm -hmm. Very cool. 
Um, question from the audience. Um, this sort of relates to hiring. So how, when you were looking to hire people, how did you, how are you able to identify passionate people? Um, you know, it maybe if you didn't know them as well, um, is there like sort of yeah, clues, well, clues that you're able to pick up on when you're interviewing people or? Well, I mean, in the beginning, in the early days, mm -hmm. like when you're really small, hire, hire people, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Uh, but eventually that runs out. Right. Uh, and then you get to the point where you have to figure it out. Um, so one thing I would say is make sure you have people from several different disciplines with your company involved in the interviews mm -hmm. and then pay a great deal of attention to anything that anybody says among the interviewers where they indicate some level of discomfort because interview which isn't necessarily fatal but interviewing is a very difficult process to do well mm -hmm. um and um it, it's it's really important to um listen to those signals that say maybe that isn't um the, the person you want um so we uh, um, also have a rule, too, where um, culture fit is, is, is a must. Or to put it another way, if you have to choose between a person who's going to be an okay performer and a strong culture fit and a person who's a, a strong performer but a weak culture fit, you go with a strong culture fit. Mm -hmm. Matters more. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, um, as you were transitioning to grow, did you have were there any big growing pains and uh, anything that you learned at that point where you were just uh, sort of surprised by, or just anything that you can sort of offer uh, for people who might be thinking about you know expanding? So, you have to be prepared for the inflection points so uh, you know if you are approaching 10 or so people um you, you get to a point where the the way you work is going to have to change mm -hmm. um and people cite different numbers and i think it varies by type of company but you know for me 10 25 50 are sort of classic numbers to think about where when you get to that number of employees, there's some fundamental level of change that happens. Mm -hmm. Like when you when you get to to, to ten people, um, you just need certain kinds of systems. It's really important to be clear about some of the financial aspects of the company and and how payroll runs is a little more disciplined than when you know there's four of you. Uh, and when you get to 25 people, and again, it varies a little bit by company, but um, you might have two levels of management all of a sudden. And um, and then 50, you know, you get another level of complexity. So the biggest thing I would say is know that those stages are coming and start thinking about them before they hit you mm -hmm. uh, and you get a big setback from it. So, you know, if you're, at six or eight people, 
um, it's probably a good idea to already have a meeting or two about what are you going to do um, when you hit to 10 to 15 and what are you going to have to do differently and what processes do you have to have in place that before you would have just handled on a, you know, with a quick text. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I think is uh, uh, the best advice I can give on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, another one from Adam Humphreys of Making Eight. What, what were some of your biggest challenges? Uh, you know, or well, or I guess it could still be, but you know, biggest challenges operating an agency can be one or a couple. Well, when you get larger, mm-hmm. and this relates to the hiring question you asked, mm-hmm. when you get larger, it, it gets harder to be as cherry-picking oriented about who you hire. Mm-hmm. You know, like ideally you'd have only strong performers with strong culture fit. Uh, um, but when you get larger, you're, you're going to lose some of that, and you're going to start to need to have some people who um, aren't necessarily tomorrow's rock star are going to be part of your uh, organization. And and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you need to be prepared for that. And that's just part of building a solid organization. Because um, if you filled your organization only with rising rock stars, it'd all be competing with each other. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you'd create kind of a mess that way. Um, but inevitably, you know, when you, you know, around 25 people are getting up to 50, you know, it's these sorts of numbers, um, you're going to hire some people that don't work out. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we hired one woman uh, into our marketing department, and um, she didn't understand the concept of an eight-hour day. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking 10, 12 now, like, a, you know, I'm talking about eight, mm-hmm. you know, um, if you're going to be in at nine and take a half hour for lunch, don't leave until five thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and we put her an initial warning. She kept doing it. Um, she got a second warning and told, you know what, you can't show up later than nine thirty any day going forward. And you have to stay, you know, eight and a half hours after that. Mm-hmm. The next day she showed up at 1030. Mm. So, um, so I'm not one who believes some of the broad things that people say about millennials, because we have a lot of millennials working for us that are amazing achievers. Mm-hmm. But this was what people can't complain about when they complain about millennials being entitled and not really getting how it worked. Oh, yeah. You can be entitled at any age for sure. (laughs) Yes, you can. Yes. All right. Uh, More good questions. Let's see. David Ionow of Dannon had a good question. So when you're talking to uh, potential businesses or potential clients, um, how, how have you found the best way to communicate the value of SEO to them? Is it, you know, you'll increase sales, you'll save money on PPC ads, you'll get more visitors. Um, sort of what have you sort of learned over the years about communicating with uh, potential clients and selling them on, uh, you know, on your services and SEO generally? 
So I always try to put it in a framework where what I'm doing is solving their problem. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm trying to sell them doesn't matter. What matters is what's the thing that I'm going to make better for them, which might be more revenue or whatever. Um, and and so it varies a little bit by job function, how I might approach a CFO versus a CMO versus a CEO versus a CIO, um, um, you know, are, are a bit different because the way they view their problems are different. But part of what I always try to do when we go in a client sale is we always bring some competitive market data, mm-hmm. like walking into a room and showing them, you know, pick a, uh, we often use search metrics because we have that here or SEM rush, you know, show them that their competitors are kicking their butt and making a lot of money on things, um, uh, you know, in ways that they aren't and then helping them understand that the, the revenue you get from organic search are the cheapest part of your overall marketing investment in terms of the uh, uh, amount of investment for value received. Um, uh, that ends up being a very powerful motivator um, uh, in those conversations. So literally a- anytime we're going into a significant sales call, we always bring that data. Mm-hmm. We're very aggressive about it. And, and uh, at times we'll do extensive research. Um, like, you know, 10, 12 hours of work just to um, be in the right place for a major meeting with a client. Mm-hmm. Um, so preparation, details, coming from their perspective and showing them the competitive picture. Uh, and then finally, you know, and here's what you do about it. Mm-hmm. So that's our general approach. Gotcha. Excellent. So as you were building up Stone Temple, you're also building up your own brand. Um, and this leads into my next question from John Weber of projectmanager.com. So he was curious. So obviously it's very challenging to keep up on, you know, the business side, but also staying up to date with search because it's constantly changing. So how did you sort of manage to do that? Like, because, you know, you're always up on the latest stuff in SEO, uh, and you're also building a, success, a successful company at the same time. So how did you manage um, to do both of those at the same time? So the, um, the, the biggest part is to realize that the only way you can do that is to spend the time on what you might call thought leadership type stuff mm-hmm. um, is by taking that time out of other things. Um, so there's only a finite number of hours in the day. Um, so the key was knowing that I would be doing, um, a lot less operationally, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, um, and, and then going out and hiring people to do those things. Okay. Um, um, and ideally, you know, if you're hiring senior managers to come in and do those things, always hire people smarter than you at those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, fundamental to the success in the Stone Temple case is um, uh, we had an amazingly strong um, G2 
chief operating officer and chief financial officer, who also happens to be uh, my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, but that uh, just like took over and drove a ton of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have to, giving me more time to uh, put in the thought leadership side of things. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's the only way you can, you can do it, you know. Um, otherwise, you, you won't have the time. Mm-hmm. Now, just to just to circle back, is a, is your wife the same person that you went to school with there at Northeastern, or is that a different? <laughs> no, 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 that that is a a, a different person entirely. Okay, so, okay, I just uh, wanted to check. I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was a a, a worthwhile question. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and my wife, by the way, exited uh, once the acquisition happened. Uh, she exited. Other than I, she still acts as the uh, amazingly good and powerful advisor for me uh-huh. uh, when we talk about things. But mm-hmm. um, but she's not involved in proficient at this point. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So yeah, we're almost uh, done with the Stone Temple phase. So uh, this was a good question from uh, Stephen Bajeo of Conductor. If you could redo one thing about how you built Stone Temple, what would you change and why? Okay. Uh, One thing about how we built Stone Temple. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think what I would have done sooner than I did was um, brought in um, other people from the thought leadership perspective. Now, we eventually did that when um, when we hired uh, uh, Mark Traphagen to join mm-hmm. us in 2013, I think it was, or maybe it was 2014, 2014. Um, uh, um, but um, it's a big investment in thought leadership, but it was a big payoff too. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I think I might have done a bit differently. Um, certainly, there's always operational things that you know you wish you had realized earlier. <laughs> um, Do you have an example? Yeah. Oh, uh, we had. Uh, uh, a major sales meeting we went to, I won't say with who, but mm-hmm. um, where we'd done a ton of great work uh, digging out all the things that, or a bunch of things that they were doing wrong just to give them a view. Um, and we didn't include in it um, uh, a, a detailed outline of, well, here's the recipe to fix it. So we called out all the problems, but not the proposed solution very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what grew out of that is, and this is something I wish we had changed earlier. Uh, so this is another example of a mistake is we have a really good process for how we deal with RFPs now. Um, it would have been wonderful to have that five years ago. Mm-hmm. And we always did fairly well, but you know, we're doing much better now. 
Okay, I have a bunch of questions about the sale to proficient. So I'm just going to give shout outs to everybody who asked questions about it and I'm going to ask their questions. So we had Dixon Jones of DHJ Ventures has questions. Tony Wright, Wright IMC, and Adam Reamer of Adam Reamer Marketing. So the next three questions come from these guys. So let's start at the start. So what, what sort of made you decide uh, to decide that, um, you know, one of the, the proficient that it was time to uh, sell uh, was there anything that sort of helped you decide that it was the right time to sell or uh, how did that all come about well there are two aspects for it i mean I, i've been i've been getting inquiries about this for a decade mm -hmm. and just ignoring them um and um so what changed is and I alluded to my tender young age of 62, mm -hmm. which is what it is. Um, look, I'm I'm not going to be doing this when I'm 70. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I love what I'm doing, but um, you know, the the you, you look ahead and you see that you know there, there's there's sort of an end to it. At some point, I'm you know going to want to be like spending more time. Uh, sipping pina coladas on the beach, um, or um, you know, hanging out with my hope, you know, maybe by then grandkids. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, so there's other things to life than working all the time. Mm -hmm. So knowing that I wasn't going to be doing this at 70, it was like, and there's just other things I want to have be part of my life, uh, um, you know, before it's done. Um, uh, you know, that, that kind of made it the right time. And then, you know, we got, uh, um, you know, an inquiry, um, that looked a bit more interesting, um, um, which we took a look at and that actually wasn't from proficient, uh, but that one didn't pan out. And mm -hmm. then this one came, came in and. And then we, you know, took a closer look at that that one, and you know, good company, um, good uh, company values, and frankly, I wanted a good landing place. I don't want it to end with you know me stepping out, which, by the way, isn't any time soon. But that's mm -hmm. a different question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's I wanted to continue. I wanted to give it a good home and. Um, you know, felt like we, we had that with proficient. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, so were there any challenges, uh, once the sale went through with the actual merge? Um, cause you know, you obviously talked earlier about how culture fit was super important. So, um, was there a good culture fit that you felt between stone temple and proficient and um, sort of how did your team react to the, to the news? Well, I mean, the initial news, uh, uh, you know, a certain number of people have been read in but it, by the time it happened, but for the bulk of the people, because you can't really, well, you literally can't talk about it publicly because we were bought by a public company, mm -hmm. um, you know, until it was final and then we announced it, you know, for the for a lot of the employees, there was shock mm -hmm. and, you know, takes a while to get used to the idea. Um, but 
Um, uh, and, and then there definitely are some big challenges with integrating the systems um, of the of the companies. Um, and to talk about a big mistake, uh, you know, proficient like they um, take over uh, a lot of the operational aspects, and certainly the HR and the financial, and you know, all these things run through proficient now. And the, those integration processes were challenging. But if I had to do it again, and this is something I would totally change, is I would have insisted that uh, Beth, my wife, uh, uh, remain a full part of the company for pick a period of time, three months, six months, something like that, um, to help drive the integration process. Because mm -hmm. there's just a lot of stuff to be figured out, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, different reporting systems, uh, you know, policies and procedures, different, um, you know, it's a 3,200 person company that we're a part of. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, it definitely had some growing pains. Uh, uh, so that, that is something I wish I had done differently right there. Mm-hmm. From an emotional perspective, was it hard to sort of let go of, well, I know it's not totally gone, but was it, is it sort of hard to let go of the Stone Temple brand that you've built up for so long? So there's a little bit of that, but um, personally, I'm actually pretty good with step function changes mm -hmm. when, um, uh, when, when I, I, know and believe and know that it's the right thing mm -hmm. um and um you know there are um definitely some attachment to everything we did but this is about ensuring its continuation and i get very focused on that mm -hmm. and, um so uh you know, it's not like um um, I'm not pining over it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we built something that was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool brand and uh, loved it. But, you know, right now, uh, I, I have a very achiever-oriented mentality. So I've got something to build. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm focused on. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, so let's see now. Where do we want to head to now? Um, we, we, let's get into content a little bit because you were talking a little bit about thought leadership and how that helped you out so much. So, I, you know, I've been reading you basically since I got into the industry. You know, you've been blogging on the Stone Temple blog since, you know, you know, I got in Search Engine Watch, Search Engine Land, Copy Blogger, Forbes, Moz, you know, list goes on and on. So um, how did you sort of... At what point did you sort of decide, well, I know you talked a little bit about it, but how did you really commit to uh, consistently writing and blogging? I know that there was the promise to Mac cuts and all that, but, um, you know, what was, and so, were, there, were there any people who influenced you um, in terms of, you know, getting into the, the writing side of things and the content creation? How did that sort of develop? So it was a little bit of an outgrowth of the um, um, whole experience with going to the conferences. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, just seeing that people were getting visibility 
and probably business uh, from from being visible, uh, from being on stage, and and then you know understanding you know learning about search engine watch and 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 seeing that there were people writing there and realizing that Mike Grehan was getting clients as a result of publishing there and mm-hmm. and then you know seeing other people and then um, and then that was actually in 2007 um, when I decided to start publishing things on the Stone Temple blog, mm-hmm. creating a blog and publishing things on it. Um, uh, and just sort of started diving in and, you know, frankly, uh, I probably wrote the, my first 10 posts were probably the best 10 posts I wrote in the first two years and nobody ever read them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, just kept plugging away at it, mm-hmm. um, until, uh, uh, Rand Fishkin one day, um, uh, put a, uh, um, a post on his site, um, uh, saying surely someone would want the, um, thousand links and 10,000 social shares that would come from doing a study of um, how analytics packages uh, count traffic and why they differ so much. Mm-hmm. And I was literally the first comment in reply to his blog post and said, you've got your volunteer. Mm. And, and uh, I ended up doing that study. It was an enormous amount of work, far more than I ever anticipated. Um, and like, I'm talking a thousand hours of time, mm-hmm. my time, mm-hmm. that I probably put into that thing. Wow. Um, but it put me on the roadmap. It got me my first speaking gig at SES San Jose. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, um, uh, yeah, it was just seeing other people doing it and figuring out it worked. I said, gee, we ought to try that. Mm-hmm. Try it. Okay, so uh, next thing I wanted to ask you about, obviously, is content. Uh, you're very well known for, um, you know, writing a lot of places, Stone Temple Blog, Search Engine Watch, Search Engine Land, uh, Copy Blogger, Forbes. Um, so obviously, you have some pretty good insights into the content creation process. Uh, I was kind of curious about um, sort of like your philosophy on uh, writing and sharing content, and also is you know, is your philosophy the same uh, both for, you know, the stuff that you're doing for your personal brand and is similar to the sort of stuff you do with your clients and and what you advise them to do? So, yeah. So on the um, um, – uh, it, it is similar in terms of what we recommend because um, uh, I think – you know, we've entered this age where really being open and giving and sharing, um, uh, you know, has really powerful business results. And it's something that uh, we think that nearly any business can benefit from. We we also don't tend to hold much back. Um, by the way, you mentioned the Stone Temple brand uh, as you know, it's really now the proficient digital brand um, that that uh, that I'm uh, a part of. Um, 
Um, but we did, of course, start this all on, uh, under the Stone Temple brand, and, and now we're just doing it for Proficient Digital. Uh, but yes, same philosophy is what we recommend. A lot of people aren't prepared to do it, and then you try to help them do whatever flavor of it that they're willing to do uh, and feel comfortable doing, you know, as long as it's all cool and kosher, of course, you don't mm-hmm. get involved in anything spammy or scammy. But. Right. Great. Uh, on a related note, um, also want to, I can't let you go without asking about the Here's Why uh, video series that you've done. So um, uh, Greg Jarbo um, of SEOPR also wanted me to ask you about this. So um wanted to just sort of ask you a little bit about how that's evolved and um, sort of how it's grown because uh, at last check, it looks like you have uh, over 4,000 subscribers now and 1.2 million views. So uh, do you want to sort of talk about how that sort of came about and what your thinking has been as that has evolved over the years? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it was originally uh, um, uh, something that uh, uh, Mark Trapigan and I started doing uh, at the time, uh, I had an office that had space where we could do the filming right in the, in the corner of the office, and we had the whiteboard as a backdrop, uh, and uh, you know, an OK camera and a shotgun mic, um, and you know, we just started uh, doing things. Um, um, and then Mark, you know, had creative uh, um, uh, control over that and evolved it over time and eventually we were doing you know uh, skits and costumes and doing some very uh, elaborate uh, kinds of uh, role play as a part of the video um, and that was very effective in helping us build our initial audience because what happened is you know all the people we know in the industry and our friends and things you know, loved it and I thought it was funny and they would uh, share it and uh, and the like but as we became uh, a part of proficient that was part of it but not really all of it and also as our needs for the series changed um, uh, it was time to evolve and in fact um, you know once we had really good distribution um, um, you know we, we didn't need costumes and skits to to get visibility uh, for the videos uh, anymore and and it wasn't such a great fit or isn't such a great fit for uh, our target customer either so you know we evolved how we approached it and we gradually started by dropping the costumes and then we later dropped the skits um, and then you know for the next stage you know uh, for varying reasons the uh, um, you know, Mark uh, um, uh, left. Uh, um, he's still one of my dearest friends in the industry, uh, and we stay in regular touch. But uh, um, you know, now he's no longer a part of the video, so we're searching for new identities, and we have several ideas for how we're going to evolve the series, and um, and we have some really amazing guest stars coming up, and. We also have this theme that some of the videos going forward are going to be very data centric uh, and various things that we're trying to evolve the the whole series. So it's been a lot of history and a lot of evolution, and it's been wonderful the the whole 
whole long journey of it. Yeah, it's it has been incredible and those very entertaining as well, of course. Um, do you have, a, as you think back, does, does any certain video pop to mind as maybe one of your favorites from the series? So, um, I well, back from the costume days, I would say uh, the Mythbusters episode mm. was one that I really liked. Uh, uh, I really, uh, uh, Mark, uh, uh, put on his, uh, Jamie beard and, and he wore it that way for, I don't know, another half year afterwards. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I played Adam and we, uh, we had a great deal of fun doing that one. Star Trek was fun. Um, but of course now, um, we're, you know, focus is changing, as I said, and, I'm very excited about some of the directions. We we have some killer guests coming on, uh, uh, and which you'll you'll get to, to hear about and see in uh, in a month or two time. And um, and the, the whole um, uh, data driven aspect of some of the ones we're going to do be doing, I think, has got some really cool juice to it. So all kinds of new experiments to run, and we'll see what works. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Um, all right. Next question. Best piece of SEO or professional advice that's ever been given to you? Uh, so uh, the the best piece of professional advice I've ever been given, uh, I received by watching uh, a TV show that uh, – Many people who see this probably won't instantly know because it's been off the air for a long time. The show was MASH. Oh, yeah. And in, in, in the episode that I'm thinking about, Hawkeye is tying himself in knots and having fit because incredibly average Vernon, I forget the guy's last name, um, got promoted to a role at a major hospital in Maine. Uh, and, you know, it's a role that, you know, Hawkeye would almost certainly have gotten if he had stayed home. And, and he, he was tying himself in knots and, and about it. But uh, Colonel Potter, uh, played by Harry Morgan, uh, at, at the end of the episode, gives him some incredibly good advice. And the advice is, you know, just don't tie yourself up in knots worrying about who's accomplishing what around you and whether they're perceived to be better than you or not. The only challenge you need to solve is how you make yourself better every day. Mm. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, if you work and focus on your own situation and how you make yourself get better every day, make progress every day, that's a challenge enough. Mm. That's so, great. Yeah. I, I think it's incredibly good advice. That, uh, um, that I've tried to, to follow. Yep. Yeah. And we see that all the time on, you know, everyone trying to play catch up and, you know, be braggy on social media and whatnot. So that that's excellent advice. Now let's flip it around. What's the worst piece of SEO advice that you've ever heard? Oh, um, uh, well, let's see. I've seen, uh, I'll, I'll give a couple examples. I've seen conference speakers uh, within the past two years stand up and 
advised that uh, getting hundreds of guest posts with rich anchor text was the way to go. Um, and that was what you should do. Um, um, and, and this was somebody, you know, trying to sell to brands, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. but you have, I mean, the black hats are still out there, of course, and they still use PBNs and evidently they still work really well for them. Um, but you know, they're using them for turn and burn sites, not major brands. So I don't really fault them for doing what they're doing or, you know, they're, they're just doing what makes sense given their business context. Um, but yeah, the, the rich anchor tech stuff was one. I, oh, I actually, um, we helped the site with a, uh, a, a site migration. This was might, might even be a decade ago, a major brand, uh, uh, enlisted an agency, which was a division of a hugely well-known consulting firm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and. They advised them to use 302 redirects in the site move. <laughs> and now you can argue today about how Google treats 302s, and there's more debate than that than there was back then. But back then, there was zero debate. Mm -hmm. It was clear. That was like, don't pass a, a, a whiff of page rank. So um, they launched that site with 302 redirects. Um, and you know the whole world came crashing down, and we were brought in to help fix it, which we did. Wow. All right. Um, next question: What are you most excited about in SEO right now? It's a contest. It's I get a free candidate answer oh, okay. for you. Okay. Visual search. Mm -hmm. Voice. You notice how I didn't say voice search because mm -hmm. it's much broader than search. And um, uh, the um, what I'll just refer to as mapping user intent into your content strategy through a significant investment in the breadth and depth of your content. Okay. Okay. It was three. Okay. So, what what's exciting to you for those three? Why are those uh, uh, interesting to you? Well, on the content one, um, because the people who are investing in really smart content plans and publishing in what I'll call comparatively high volume, where comparatively means, you know high volume as compared to what their competitors are doing mm -hmm. are completely killing it in search right now. They're just making money hand over fist. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so um, voice is exciting because um, as we get more and more devices that don't have a good keyboard or a decent sized screen, um, um, or even for that matter, real browsers. Um, it's just going to be increasingly important as an input paradigm, and it will drive a shift in the mix of search queries that people use. And then visual, because um, 
Well, it's one of those areas where things are already emerging. Like you can take a picture of something, uh, use your Google Lens or Bing Visual Search, uh, take a picture of something. Um, it will likely recognize it and it'll give you either related information or give you the opportunity to buy something like it or, or whatever. I think there's a lot of power in that. Excellent. And our final question. What's next for you, Eric? What are you looking for or forward to next in your career? Well, right now my career is about growing the digital marketing team at Proficient Digital. I'm very excited about that. Uh, uh, we brought, as part of our being acquired, uh, in a lot of great resources. But there are also a bunch of great people and great resources here. And it really gives us a, a bigger and better scope for how we can approach client conversations. We're already leveraging that in many cases. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I'm going to stay here a while. Um, we'll see how it evolves. But, um, you know, for the time being, this is what my focus is. Awesome. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your story. I sincerely appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. Uh, before we uh, sign off, uh, do you want to remind everyone how they can uh, connect with you on social media or just anywhere online? And um, is there anything that you uh, maybe would like people to check out in particular? Any uh, sort of any anything that you'd recommend people checking out of yours? So, um, so my uh, Twitter handle is at Stone Temple. On LinkedIn, it's just Eric Enga. Um, and uh, currently, the website uh, where I publish remains stonetemple.com, but very shortly, that will be on proficientdigital.com. Um, so there'll be a lot of uh, great content going on out there. Um, check out our studies, our research work. I think we do some stuff that uh, uh, very few people in the industry do. We have some extensive stuff we've done on topics like AMP or, um, well, mobile versus desktop volumes. Uh, we have a killer study coming up on image recognition. I, I can call it killer because it almost killed the people who worked on it. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, so uh, you know, just a lot of great content. We're going to keep it coming. Excellent. And I also highly recommend the uh, links as ranking factor. Uh, ah, yeah. that's a, a great one as well so great yeah. excellent yeah, so yep awesome thank you so much Jane. all right so just on a quick closing note eric i'd just like to thank you for all the amazing work you've done and continue to do to help the industry um, through all your speaking and writing and research that you've done um, i mean you've easily helped thousands of people become better at their job so uh, you are truly one of the nicest and hardest working guys i know out there and i'm Sincerely glad to call you friend. So continued success to you, my friend. Ah, uh, yes. Well, thank you, Danny, and glad to call you friend as well. And looking forward to when we can catch up next at one of the conferences out there. Absolutely. All right. Well, that does it for us. So thanks to everyone for listening today. I really appreciate it. And I hope uh, you'll tune in again in uh, the coming weeks. Uh, make sure to subscribe to our podcast. And you can also follow Search Engine Journal at SE Journal on Twitter. And you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn, of course. Uh, you can also follow me at Mr. Danny Goodwin on Twitter. 
that's it. Uh, so long, everybody, and thanks for listening. <laughs>